the possibility we have of opening to the infinite or what's also sometimes called the absolute. That place of emptiness that holds everything. That space of such spaciousness that there is no reaction to whatever is arising. Today I wanted to talk about, in some ways, the opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) Some of you who weren't here last year um, uh, might not have um, known that my father died this time last year while I was teaching last year's retreat. And for various reasons and conditions, coming here this time has brought up an extraordinary amount of pain around his death and pain around our relationship. And I've been going in and out of it during this retreat. And sometimes it hasn't just been the sadness and grief that comes with um, someone we love who dies. But sometimes there's also been extreme dissociation that has come from the trauma that was in in our relationship when I was a young child. And so there have been times (coughs) when there hasn't been any emptiness and when there hasn't been any spaciousness. Times when it feels like it's been absolutely impossible to be mindful. (laughs) And so I was thinking about this and thinking, what, what gives me the trust? What gives me trust being in this process? Because while I felt the extraordinary difficult, difficulty of it, and also sometimes the, the struggle of wanting to be here with you in um, free, of these energies, wanting to be with you in a total space of emptiness and feeling sometimes the judgments of, oh, you know, how can you be teaching this retreat and going through all these things? Now you know what teachers already experience sitting up here. <laughs> we, don't, we aren't really as good as we look. <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) So, uh, given this and and the challenges uh, (laughs) that um, um, of being here in this place, but not only of being here, of of just the challenges that I, like you, face in in our lives. What is it? What is it that really gives me a, a sense of of 
unshakable trust in terms of the Dharma, what allows me and what has allowed me to go sometimes to the very depths of despair, of pain that feels unending, of, of um, difficulties where there feels absolutely no spaciousness at all and that I can't do anything at all about it, that it just is as awful as it is and that mind is so tight that you can't even call in metta. You can't say, may I love myself, because it's just too contracted for that. And I was sitting up on the hills, and I was contemplating it, and what came to me when I thought about it was karma. Karma gives me total and absolute, absolutely unshakable faith in the Dharma. Because I understand that at the very core of my being, no matter how far I am caught, no matter how far I'm dissociated, no matter how much pain I'm in, at the very core of my being, I understand that my deepest intention is for my healing. And that what karma says is that every intention always has a consequence. Every intention always has a consequence. The, the formal definition is the missional action which wills the mind and body or organizes the mind and body towards a goal. The Buddha said it this way. He said it in a very conservative, um, I mean in a verse that many of you might recognize. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. You could substitute mind for heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheels of a cart, the track of the ox, that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. It's not that my mind or heart in these times are calm or bright. But they do have as my deepest wish my healing. Over and over again I've understood the power of intention, or we could even say the power of prayer. It's the same thing. That aligning, and it isn't even on a verbal level, but the aligning, that, that knowing that hovers in the background, that knows I wish for myself in the deepest and most whole way my healing. At the very crux of karma is understanding what brings suffering and what doesn't. The Buddha didn't make a distinction. 
he, he, he wasn't kind of sitting up there saying, this time you really fucked up, Arena. <laughs> you, know, you really are bad. <laughs> Here you are caught in this old karma, you know. <laughs> what he said is, see for yourself. You know, and Eric invited us not to even believe what the Buddha said or he said or I said. See for yourself what brings freedom and what brings suffering. Or we could say that the crux of karma is ethical action. That's the crux of it. And when I feel like, what gives me unshakable faith? What do I adore most about the Dharma? It is the understanding that I am a hundred percent totally aligned with my wishes for healing and not for harmful actions and not for harmful speech and not for harmful thoughts. And that gives me undying confidence. That doesn't mean that I don't lose it. It doesn't mean that Eric doesn't, or even probably the Dalai Lama, who we've quoted so much as the super being, you know, he loses it too. We, uh, until you're a Buddha, um, or probably an Arahant, which means that you are totally purified, and there's not too many of those around us in our lifetimes, right now, anyway, in this country. Um, <laughs> we lose it. So that's not the issue. The issue is understanding and knowing the path. The path which liberates and the path which brings us more and more into that constriction that Eric has talked about. That's the crux of the Dharma. Understanding that through understanding what is ethical, what is skillful. We can build our freedom even in the midst of that total despair. Thich talks about it, and I, I like it because it's so simple. He talks about karma as a storehouse. He says, imagine in your minds you have the storehouse and you have all kinds of seeds, orange seeds and apple seeds and dahlia seeds and all kinds of bean, red kidney bean seeds. <laughs> I don't even like them. <laughs> and, and he says, every time we move with our intention, our volitional intention, our conscious intention towards a goal, we're watering one of those seeds. How do we create a future of freedom? We water particular seeds that support that freedom. Here are the seeds that we can water. Faith, mindfulness, being scared to do something that is immoral, fear 
of doing something that is wrong, in the good sense of it, non-greed, non-hatred, tranquility of mind, cultivating lightness of mind, having that sense of deep flexibility of mind, and a, a, a deep knowing or proficiency of mind, right speech, right action, right livelihood, compassion, appreciative joy and wisdom. Those are the faculties that we can cultivate. Here are the ones that bring suffering, these teachings say. See for yourself. Delusion, shamelessness, fearlessness of wrong, restlessness, greed, wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, and doubt. In a way, I don't think there's anything more empowering for us in our lives than to understand in detail, specifically, what are the energies, not that make us bad, but just that bring suffering, and what are the energies that liberate. And even when we can't call on the energies that liberate, even when there have been moments during the day I have not had lightness or malleability of mind one inch iota, I know that I haven't been feeding greed or hatred or delusion. And that gives me unshakable faith. just to know that there are qualities which liberate us and that there are qualities which don't. Here's a beautiful poem by Mary Alban. She says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Every tree, every growing thing as it grows, says this truth. You harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. We are asked, what are we going to do with our life? 
are we going to cultivate love or any of those skillful energies? Or, if not that, refrain from strengthening the unskillful ones. There is one quality that Eric and I have been talking about over and over again, and it is mindfulness because it is mindfulness that allows us to see whether what's in our mind is skillful or unskillful. Without mindfulness, we are blind. Without mindfulness, we can't see. There was a really beautiful Tibetan teacher, I don't know if any of you um, had the good fortune to meet him, called Nayosho Ken Rinpoche. I've um, Sharon and Joseph studied with him and some of um, the other teachers. He's, he's, he just recently died. And um, he, he has <laughs> this song that really gets to the nitty-gritty. He says, um, Homage to the king and queen of self-existing mindfulness. Look here, all friends. I am the Vajra of mindfulness. When seeing me, be mindful. Look into the essence of the mind. I am the mirror of mindfulness, clearly showing your mindful attention. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. Mindfulness is the main part of the practice. Mindfulness is the stronghold of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to spontaneously aware wisdom. Without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. A lack of mindfulness is the creator of all faults. A lack of mindfulness doesn't accomplish any purpose. A lack of mindfulness is like a heap of excrement. (laughs) A lack of mindfulness is to sleep in an ocean of urine. (laughs) He's getting down there. (laughs) A lack of mindfulness is like a heartless corpse. Friends, please be mindful. Through the aspiration of this guru, may all friends attain firm mindfulness. Underlying that, underlying the mindfulness that we've cultivated and a way at the heart of looking at karma is effort because without making the effort any understanding that we have doesn't manifest effort really is the key it energizes and gives life to our understanding and at the same time is the vehicle is the energetic vehicle that transforms us it's effort And so when we really understand karma, it inspires us enormously to effort, to aligning our energy over and over again to see how can I work with myself? What is it? What is it that I can do? How do I need to be living with myself in this moment so that I can create a future that is different than my past. For some of us, our past has been filled with such deep suffering. There is intense motivation to create a future that is free of suffering. 
I have been deeply motivated. And like you during these days, I've been deeply motivated. While, while feeling that I didn't sleep last night. And I, I, was, talking, I was talking to Valerie over here about insomnia. Um, some of you share incredible insomnia, I know. We, we share insomnia, that is. And we were talking about it, and I said, one of the things I do is that I never let myself lie in bed and not sleep, that I always make myself get up and practice. Do I want to? No. <laughs> but I know my mind, and I know that if I lie in bed, it is going to go to the negative. I am going to get into frustration, I'm going to get into desire, and I'm going to get into aversion. And the first step that the Buddha talks about in effort in the Eightfold Path is he says, guard your minds, dear friends, about conditions which give rise to negative energies. Because you can guard your minds. He said, look into your lives and see when do you move into negative energies. I know for myself it's when I don't eat enough. I can easily skip meals, and when it comes to about 8 o'clock, I am so irritable I could bite everyone's head off, you know. It, it's going to bed too late and not getting enough sleep. It's rushing and trying to get someplace in a car with not enough time. We see in our lives, and the Buddha says, guard against these conditions. And so one of the things that this means for me in terms of practice is guarding against the condition around insomnia of the negative energies arising. So all last night, I didn't see any of you around. <laughs> I would go down to the kitchen and get a cup of tea, practice walking meditation, then I do walking meditation in my room, then I would do metta, then I would do different touch points in my body, then I would get up again and read the Dharma, and that, that was all last night until <coughs> 6 o'clock. And I didn't suffer. I didn't suffer. It wasn't pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't suffer. And that's the beauty of karma, is knowing what we have to do in order to cultivate the conditions for skillful qualities of mind. The Buddha said, guard against the negative energies arising by looking at conditions in your life. And then he said, and we've talked about this a fair amount, abandon those energies once they have arisen. Abandon them. He said, they cannot bring you anything, anything but suffering. This brings me back to the gravy. <laughs> I got quite a few notes. <laughs> about the gravy. <laughs> Why couldn't you just get up and get yourself the gravy? <laughs> <laughs> or aren't we born into our 
bodies to experience the delights of the body? Good questions. <laughs> this practice actually invites us by being present to our body experiences to a deep delight, to an incredible delight of the body when it arises. So my challenge to you all for next year is what's the difference between the delight that spontaneously arises because we're present with our bodies, the delight of seeing, and desire? Can you feel the difference just in me saying it? Desire is a different experience than the spontaneous delight of being present in our bodies. Desire actually takes us away from that spontaneous delight. And it takes us and ties us to an object so that we don't actually even get to experience the delight of that object in desire because desire has a contraction in the mind. It's not an open presence to it. And this is radical. It is radical because this culture over and over again has taught us that following desire brings happiness. That if we follow desire for different pleasant experiences, we will find happiness. And it's true that we find comfort. And it's true that sometimes it's, it might be delightful. But it's actually not nearly as delightful as having those experiences without desire. Desire actually contracts the mind more and more into that sense of being small. Just take a moment right now and think of an experience where you have really desired something, where you've really wanted something badly. Can you feel how desire is actually tying you into that object in a way in which you're not free anymore? Because you feel in order to be happy, you have to have that object. And whenever we feel like in order to be happy, we have to, anything, we're not free anymore. When we let go of those arising desires, what happens? The heart opens, and as the heart opens, we get to actually experience in a much more exquisite way the blessings of the broccoli and potato without the gravy. <laughs> the, the beautiful thing about karma is that it tells you every time you let go of a desire, you're decreasing the strength of the hold desire has on your mind. And I promise you that it is deeply liberating to let go of desire. It is deep. It, it opens the chain or the link of the chain that brings about the space of emptiness that we talked about. In fact, when the Buddha first talked 
about the Dharma. The very first talk he gave to the five um, acquaintances that he had practiced with for so many years, practiced asceticism with, he said, I'm going to give you the very essential truths of the Dharma. And he said, life as it is constituted is uncomfortable, is stressful, is changing. And he called that dukkha. Our bodies grow old and die. Our loved ones leave us. We're with people that we don't love. We get sick. We experience many, many sorrows. He said, this is it. This is life. This, this is what we're living. And he said, there is tremendous suffering that comes from these experiences when, and then he said, this is the second noble truth. <coughs> and this is the second thing he, he mentioned after his enlightenment, when there is desire or attachment. He said the single, the single causative energy that brings about our suffering is clinging and desire, is attachment. Because when we attach to something and conditions change, we're left unsatisfied. Conditions change. You all know conditions change. But not only do conditions change, because they will change, but we're left with that clutching. And that clutching is a closed heart. That clutching is a contracted heart. That clutching is a small self. So that's why I let go of the gravy. (laughs) (laughs) So the Buddha talked about guarding against the conditions that bring me unskillful states of mind. He talked about abandoning the energies that build the small self or that build suffering or the unskillful states of mind. And then he said, nurture the skillful ones and maintain the skillful ones. See in your life what you need to do in order to nurture and maintain the skillful energies in your mind. And I want to I want to um, read the story because um, it's such a beautiful story about one of the things that m- that obstructs the opening of our heart and obstructs the allowing that brings about the conditions for skillful states to arise. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. 
The man staggered into our car. He wore labourer's clothing and he was big, drunk and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The labourer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the centre of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said over and over again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting to my feet. People are in danger, and if I don't do something fast, they will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the computer strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart. But he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous lilting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something and he, stum he suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese. He must have been well into his seventies, this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me but beamed delightedly at the labourer as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me, he waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared about the clacking wheels. 
Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparking with interest. I been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmons tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It's gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling. I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippling through his body. Now it was my turn, standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness. I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, that's a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I love that story because so often our ideas about how we think we should be as martial artists, as doctors, as nurses, as wives, as moms, take us away from that inner heart connection and awareness that allows us to live a path of gentleness and openness. In my interviews with you, often there's been this question of what should I do next? How should I live my life? Our coming to connection to ourselves, our opening to not only what is beautiful, but to what the laborer in the subway represents, to all that's difficult. The gift of our listening to ourselves, the gift of being present and connecting to ourselves,
becomes our path, becomes our vision, gives us eyes to see step by step what needs to be happening. Not from the idea of I'm an Aikido martialist, but from our heart of, oh, come here, let me embrace you, let me hold you, or let me just live with patience with you as these difficulties arise, and let me surrender in knowing that my path and that my true path can only come about from an inner connection that is guided by mindfulness and the understanding of karma. To call into being over and over again what is kind and to let go of what is unkind. Every tree, every growing thing as it grows says this truth, you harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. So let's sit together for a moment. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.